Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Well, what a difference a week makes, huh? Welcome back to the Clay Young Show on Podcast 225 and on iTunes. Don't forget you can go into that iTunes store, hit the subscribe button, and don't have to worry about looking up the show every week. It'll pop into your inbox every time there is a new episode. And from time to time, there may be special shows that come earlier than every Thursday here at podcast225.com. Last week's show was interesting. It was a great conversation with the Capital Area Transit Systems CEO, Bob Mirabito. And I thought it was a good interview. I thought we had very candid discussion about what's happening at Cats, what's happening in the city, his background, where he came from, where he wants to go. But man, this past week, as you listen to this, has been something. The podcast got all of this attention in the local paper, the Baton Rouge Advocate. It was talked about on local talk radio. I did a couple of interviews about it. And the discussion centered around comments made by Bob Mirabito in last week's show concerning people who may choose not to ride the bus because of various reasons, one of which might be the racial makeup of some of the people on the bus and the operator. And I'll say this to you about these shows. I'm really not looking to have discussions with people that are just like interviews you can hear anywhere else. I want people to be able to say what they really think. I ask real questions. I am not interested in giving people a list of my questions before the show because a big part of discussions with guests happens organically, right? So we're talking about a subject. I'm listening to them. And sometimes questions are born out of the answers that they give. So I'm certainly not looking to bring anybody into here and cause them trouble. You know, you don't want to want to do that. But I want real conversation. I want you to listen to this podcast and get insight into people that you might not have gotten otherwise. I don't have to rush to get in and through an interview. I can take my time with people. And I think that gives you the best opportunity to get honesty from them. I don't want people to rehearse answers before they come in and talk with you. I want you, the listener, to get a real view of what people think and how they think. That's important to me. When I listen to interviews, the best interviews are more about the person being interviewed than the person doing the interview. Although the show has my name on it, it really isn't about me. It's about you, the listener, and it's about the people who sit in this chair across the table from me, and I want to hear their thoughts. I want to know how they formulate opinions. I want to know about their experiences, and I want to deal with issues that quite frankly, sometimes make people squeamish. Race, religion, politics. Now, all of our shows won't be on that level. I do plan on shows that deal with things like menus. Like I love barbecue. I want to do a barbecue show because there's so many ways to do it right. And then shows about fashion. Shows about entertainment. There'll be lots of other things that happen, but you can rest assured when we have those conversations, I want real answers. And I'm willing to challenge people if they don't give me a real answer. Don't give me some PCBS. Tell me the truth. And I thought that Bob Mirabito was honest. I certainly don't think he was intending to offend anyone. He certainly doesn't have an issue with black people. He certainly doesn't think that, uh, you know, this town is racist. He just made an observation. And it was one small part of a very long discussion. And I tell people you can judge for yourself. I don't pretend to tell you how to think, but I will tell you that the interview was more than just that part. So we have a very, very busy show today. We are going to talk with Rebecca Allen, who is a reporter, an ace reporter for the Baton Rouge Advocate about a story she conducted uh, a few weeks, a few days ago, actually, it's about the Baton Rouge Area Foundation. The Baton Rouge Area Foundation is a major organization, not just in Louisiana, but along the Gulf Coast. And it was a very engrossing piece. And we'll get into that because the, the premise of the piece was about the power that moves cities. And normally that power moves in secrecy. That's right. 
And so that conversation is coming up after the break. And then part one of our two-part discussion with Jeff LaDuff, who used to be the police chief in Baton Rouge. He is the first African-American police chief, and he tells some great stories. Uh, we laugh. We we spend some time thinking about losses. I've known the man for a very long time. And again, he is jarringly honest about his time there, how he feels about the city, how he feels about the men and women uh, who were under his command. And I think you're going to enjoy the discussion. First up, a little bit of business. I've been doing this the last couple of weeks, and I'd like to talk with you about Warriors for Freedom. Warriors for Freedom is a nonprofit organization that helps our military heroes. So many of the men and women who have served America abroad come home and often have differences or, or issues that they can't necessarily deal with, specifically post-traumatic stress. And every day in America, 22 military veterans commit suicide, 22 a day. This is why Warriors for Freedom has a messaging campaign right now called Remember the 22. Remember the 22. So you can Google that or go to Warriors for Freedom's website and find out how you can get involved. It's a great cause, and I hope that many of you will do that. Now, you can follow me on Twitter, and that Twitter handle is at ClayYoungBR, at C-L-A-Y-Y-O-U-N-G-B-R, and of course, on Facebook, just search my name. And you can keep up with what's happening on the show who we're talking with, what we're talking about. Some of the guests upcoming include U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy. Dr. Bill Cassidy will be with us. We're going to talk about other issues involving the state. Uh, and like I said, there will be lighter topics as well. But this is pretty much my digital front porch, as I told you. We sit, we have conversation. And if you ever have questions for guests or if you have guest suggestions, you can let me know that on Twitter at ClayYoungBR or on Facebook. And if you'd like to advertise here on The Clay Young Show or on Podcast225.com, take down this number, 225-214-1550, 225-214-1550, lots of great surprises on the way. All right, up next, we talk with advocate reporter, Rebecca Allen, right here on The Clay Young Show on Podcast 225 and on iTunes. Hit that subscribe button back in just a moment. Clay Young here with John Conroy, the founder and owner of Pest Stop Do-It-Yourself Pest Control. Now is the time to start thinking about prepping your lawn and getting ready when this cold weather finally gets out of here, John. Let's talk about termites. Oh, yeah. With the warmer weather moving in, if you're seeing little winged critters flying around your house, that's usually an indication that you've got a subterranean infestation somewhere. So the thing you want to do is to, one, look around the bottom of the slab to see if you find the tunnels. If you find the tunnels, then you need to come see us because we carry the exact same products that the professionals use, and applying those products in a trench will generally give you protection for up to 12 to 14 years. Now's the time to start thinking about it. How can they find you? Well, our metairie store is located at 3512 Severn Avenue next to the Pepper Mill in Covington. We're located at 1417 North Causeway. That's in the same shopping center as Sherwin-Williams. On uh, the West Bank, we're on the Palco just before the Harvey Bridge. And in Baton Rouge, we're at 806 O'Neill Lane. Treat your home and lawn with the products available at Pest Stop. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. We are talking with Rebecca Allen, who is a reporter for the Baton Rouge Advocate. And Rebecca, first of all, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How long have you been in Baton Rouge working with the Advocate? I've been with the Advocate for about four and a half years now. Um, I've been in, Bat- I mean, I went to school in Baton Rouge. I LSU? LSU? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, f- what made you decide that you wanted to get into journalism? Um, I, li- I liked writing, you know, so I kind of joined the Reveille at LSU on a whim. Yeah. And then I liked it, so I stuck. The Reveille is aggressive. It's like they're like renegades over there. They want to break news. I, I can remember doing talk radio and having reporters from the Reveille. They, they did not care. They, they were kind of chesty about how take us seriously. Yes, we really did think it was like a, a very real newspaper. I'm very proud of them still. I think they do a good job, but uh, it's, it's like a, a religion. 
Well, that's the way media is. So we have you here initially to talk about the story about the Baton Rouge Area Foundation. It was very well done. It's a, it's a long engrossing piece. I actually printed it. And when you print it, it's like eight pages uh, because I wanted to have it in front of me. But before we get to that, last week, uh, last week's show, the podcast with Katz CEO Bob Mirabito was all over the news and you wrote about it. And I'll just ask you this. Uh, what was your first impression when you heard the, the conversation? The, the full conversation or yes. the race? The, uh, well, the, the full conversation and then specifically that about race. Well, I thought, um, you know, it sounded like Bob. You know, he's very honest. Um, he likes to try to, um, you know, set expectations that are realistic. And I think that, you know, that was kind of in line with what he was doing. As far as the race discussion, uh, race came up, you know, s- several times in, in the conversation yeah. in, in a few different ways. Um, I thought that maybe he didn't understand exactly how it was going to be received. I don't think he meant it maliciously at all. Nope. I don't think he is a racist person nope, at all. not at all. So when I heard it and I realized that we were going to have to write about it because it would be controversial and it would be offensive to some people – you know, I called him and I, you know, I, I explained what we were going to do and I s- expected that he might try to soften it or, you know, clarify it in a way that he, that would make sure that people weren't offended. But um, he uh, he did not do that at first. Well, he's and, and like you said, I, and I personally believe that as well. I don't believe Bob Mirabito is a racist at all. As a reporter, you write about a great number of things. Do you ever think we will ever be able to have real, serious, brutally honest conversations about race. Personally, just to let you know, I don't know that we will anytime soon. Maybe younger folks can, but I don't know as it stands now that the conversation can happen without a bunch of yelling and screaming. I think that the conversation does happen in you know a variety of things that that we cover. I mean, the St. George discussion has a race element to it. Yeah. You know, cats, obviously the tax, that has a race element to it. Yeah. But I don't know that you can have it without people getting emotional. That's just a reality. Rebecca Allen, a reporter with The Advocate, is here with us. So let's talk about the story on the Baton Rouge Area Foundation. What was the motivation to write this? Well, I've been covering Baton Rouge government for about you know four years mm-hmm. now. And it's just something that's always been in the background. You know, you we write about things all the time, attacks or, you know, like the fairness ordinance that came yeah. up. And then, and we sort of know in the background that that just from our own reporting and dealings and um, that that BRAF is, is heavily involved or, or when it's something big like, you know, the Water Campus or IBM, we know that they're sure. heavily involved, but, um, you know, through their own organization, they kind of take a backseat role. Um, they kind of comment about things after the fact. And mm-hmm. I noticed that some, you know, I would get an email from a reader and, and it would be like, who is BRAF? You know, what, like, you know, you're talking about, it, like everybody understands it. And, um, I think it was just sort of a, you know, wanting to give credit where credit's due. It's so it's 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 interesting. Some of the comments made, uh, John Davies and people involved, they generally like to do things without gaining any attention. They think, and as it's quoted in in the piece, they associate credit with kind of revealing their role in something that he's not really interested in. That were they resistant to give you inside information? They weren't actually. Um, you know, they're very smart. They're 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 very savvy. Everything that they do is purposeful. Uh, you know, they admit that they don't like the attention because um, not because they are trying to be like shadowy, but mm-hmm. because they think that they're mo- they're most effective if they are just doing things and not taking credit. They, re- I mean, I think that it's kind of big of them to say like, you know, the governor or the. Uh, you know, the mayor or LED or, you know, everyone, you guys take full credit for these things that we've been working really hard on. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty big when, when, it's, a, when it's a great uh, announcement like IBM or something. Right. Describe the, the chain of communication between BRAF and these offices, like the mayor's office, the governor's office, Stephen Moray over at Louisiana Economic Development. Um, that BRAF kind of gives, I don't want to say marching orders because that's, that kind of demeans what these other officials are doing. But BRAF says we have an initiative that we would like you to push forward. Kind of describe how those work based upon your, your research. Well, based on, you know, I think I'm sure it's different for every case, but like, for example, when they like were the talking, tax. 
Yeah, when they're talking about the Restoration Center, that was something where they had been looking at that um, independently. You know, they've been researching, um, you know, ways to address mental illness in the community for a while, just as an initiative that they were in, um, they were concerned about. And then once they they crystallized in their mind the best way to do it by um, visiting this restoration center in San Antonio, they decided that that's what's going to happen here in Baton Rouge. Um, you know, it's just a matter of talking to the mayor at that point and with the law enforcement officers, and they have great access because they're extremely knowledgeable, extremely you know, influential, very yeah. wealthy. I mean, it's like they're donor based, they're board members, they're people with clout. Um, yeah. They're not the kind of people you don't take those phone calls. Do you think, well, let me ask this first. What are some details about that relationship and about what Brack has done, Braff has done, that the general public would find surprising? Um, I've heard that uh, that they regularly, like that Davies regularly has, you know, dinner with the mayor once a month. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that it would be very surprising. I mean, you see them in the office a lot, like lobbying and 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 making those uh, like those phone calls and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Nothing surprising. I think that the the real surprise was that when you see these initiatives like on the ballot, when you see these initiatives coming for the Metro Council or this big economic development announcement, that you know the BRAF really BRAF it really is more involved than you think because it's just the elected officials that you're seeing taking the credit for it usually. Is there any downside to organizations this powerful having more than a hun- uh, more than a half billion dollars in assets and moving so many uh, you know initiatives? And your piece says that they're they may be the most powerful organization of its kind in the Gulf South, not just Louisiana. Is there a downside to that? The criticism of it is that you have. Um, People calling the shots that uh, that don't have to, um, you know, own up to it. So there's like an, a level of transparency, but I mean, they don't, they, you know, they don't have to. Uh, the other issue is that it's it's the richest people in, yeah. in the parish. I yeah. mean, it is the absolute. You have to be pretty wealthy to even be like a base level donor with BRAF. Yeah. But the people who are um, just the most influential up there, the Riley family, the Nolans. I mean, they're they're incredibly wealthy, and they have um, a lot of uh, influence in this parish with government officials and, and organizations and that kind of thing. So, I mean, you, you get that sense that it's a small group of people who get to make the decisions, and it's, it's rarely like the, you know, Joe on the street. Or, sure. Do you think that they're, based on your conversations with them, do they get all parts of Baton Rouge, like um, the two sides of Florida Street, as you've talked about, you know, the the quote unquote haves and have nots. I mean, these are people who are incredibly wealthy. They've earned, you know, their money. But can they relate to the average blue collar Joe Schmo who's going to work every day, schlepping 40, 50, 60 hours a week? Right. Um, You know, I don't want to criticize them. But I would say that there there have been, just in our interviews, there have been questions about, you know, like they're putting... Uh, like hospitals in West Africa, yeah. But like, why, you know, if they're so powerful, if they're able to to accomplish so much, why haven't we seen some real movement in um, like North Baton Rouge? Yeah. I mean, they, by their own admission, um, say that they have not been able to make an effective change in the realm of education, like mm-hmm. K through twelve. Yeah. And that's something that's extremely, extremely important to them. That's something we couldn't get into the story just because of space and time limitations, but we wish we could have. Um. The story also talks about, and, and I encourage people to read it. You can still find it on the Advocates website. It talks about St. George. That would be the breakaway portion of Baton Rouge. If you don't understand it, it's uncorporated parts of the parish that are outside of the Baton Rouge city limits. And there is a movement there to turn that into a city. Braff is very much against that without revealing any off-the-record comments from them, kind of talk about their emotion about it. Well, that's the thing about it, is that they haven't actually said that they're very against it. You would would guess that they are because they were behind two of the most important um, studies that have come out that have been used as fuel for the people that are against it. But it just kind of goes to this whole sense of, you know, they get to make an impact, um, they're, you know, dropping bombs on St. George, but... Like they didn't, they never actually came out with, um, with a comment on it. They never, 
Uh, and, and, we, and we asked, and initially they, they declined comment on it. It's interesting how the public doesn't always know mm-hmm. how the bread is baked, you know, in terms of policy initiatives, money being spent. It isn't unique to just here. I'm certain that there are groups like this all over the country. What was the most surprising thing you learned in doing this story? Um, let's see, surprising. The thing about the story was that a lot of, a lot of it wasn't that surprising to me. It was like kind of trying to explain it to the people. Hmm. I guess what was surprising to me was really I had an I had an inkling that they were very behind the this most recent tax. Yeah. Um, and my hypothesis was that they pushed it more so than um, law enforcement and and the mayor who yeah. who were the ones that had their face on it. Sure. So it and the reporting turned out that that was true. That they that they really were the impetus that they that it would have never happened had they not taken an interest in it this time. It's a good piece to read. We encourage it. Uh, Rebecca Allen, a reporter with the Advocate. How can people reach you on Twitter? At Rebecca Allen. And and it's it's R E B A. No no no. no R E B E K E K A H. There, there go. we go. I follow <laughs> her on Twitter. Thanks, Rebecca. I Thank appreciate you. it. Up next, part one of a two-part conversation with former Baton Rouge Police Chief Jeff Laduff right here on The Clay Young Show on podcast225.com. In the market for a pre-owned car or SUV? Then direct your attention to AcuraBR.com, Acura of Baton Rouge's website that's got the list of certified pre-owned cars and SUVs. Now, these are still cars and SUVs that qualify for warranty. That's right. The quality of an Acura, pre-owned but still with a warranty can't beat that. And now they've got other cars on the lot as well. Think about it. People are trading in fairly nice vehicles to come and get a new Acura. You can see that list online. You can save a little money and still get a great deal on a car or SUV. On the lot, they're waiting to serve you. The people there are fantastic. And it's not going to be one of those wham-bam, rush-you-in-and-out kind of situations. They want to make certain that you get a great deal and that you are 100% Happy with the experience. See the selection online at AcuraBR.com. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show. All right, our guest here right now is former Baton Rouge Police Chief Jeff LaDuff, one of my dear friends. What's going on, my friend? I'm I'm good, little brother. How about you, Clay? I'm doing fantastic, man. I want to give you this as we start. I was talking about this earlier, and I I told the story, so people listening, they've heard it, just heard it. But I'll give you this bracelet. And on, have you? Are you familiar with the campaign? Remember the twenty-two? Man, just learned about it recently. Yeah. 22 military veterans a day commit suicide, and I have given away a ton of those, and that's yours. Thank you so much. And look, I'm putting it on. Putting it on right now. Let's talk about what you're doing right now. Tell me what you've been up to lately. Well, besides just being old, uh, (laughs) uh, my son and I started a a consulting business together. And uh, we do safety training and consulting. And we work with hospitals and casinos and hotels and private industry. And uh, we're a little different than most. Because we're not cookie cutter. Okay. We go in and we look at your problems, right. and then we address the safety and concerns that you have as a business, especially as it gears toward the employee. Now talk talk about that now. So you you go into a company and you teach them or you teach their staff how to protect themselves. Exactly. And, and we know that protection is not just what you do with your hands and feet. It's what you do with your mind and your eyes. So, so what about that? We look at the surroundings. We'll okay. tell you, uh, you know, everyone is concerned about the active shooter today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, workplace violence. And should an event happen, we've gone in and look at your business. We can give your employees because we, we, we gear toward the employees because any business, that's your greatest asset. That's right. Without your employees, I don't care what your bottom line is, it's going to be affected. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we give them an out. We tell them, we show them how to use the internal environment, the external environment. Right. Uh, what tools are available to help them escape. Because in a bad situation where your life is threatened, you only have a couple of options. That's right. You can hide, you can run, or you can fight. Mm-hmm. That's it. So we, we show you how to do all of them. Right. And uh, at the bottom line, you know, we... We, we tell every person that I talk to, I tell them that in a, in a business setting, 
and I tell this to, to your listeners because we want everyone to be safe. That's right. Um, the fire extinguisher is the best tool in any business because it can help you hide. Right. It throws the smoke if I need to cross a hall. So we show them how to use things like that. And if you have to fight with it, you can spray somebody that's, in the face with right. it and get that's out. That's right. That's and right. If it gets really bad, hit them in the head with it and run, you know, <laughs> but, but save yourself. Well, let's go back to the beginning, man, when you, you were a motorcycle cop. But let's talk about before then. What made you as a young man say, I want to be a police officer? You know, Clay, uh, I told this story and uh, when, from the very beginning. Okay. People who know me know this story. I've always wanted to be the police. At a very young age, yeah. I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and when I uh, became chief, I told this story. And uh, I think one of the reporters, um, with, with one of the press reporters, yeah. uh, went out and they found this lady. I actually, the first person I told I wanted to be a police chief was my fourth grade teacher. Her name was Melba Herson. Yeah. And uh, I was fortunate to be, uh, to have Miss Herson in my life from the time I was a little boy right. until she died uh, a few years ago. One of them. One of my dearest, dearest friends. And uh, Easter break, we uh, would come to Baton Rouge every year as a right. family to, right. to go downtown and shop. And uh, I saw a motorcycle policeman on, on the corner because back then, with me being old, there was no Mall of Louisiana, mm -hmm. Cartana Mall. Mm -hmm. Things were downtown. And mm -hmm. we would go downtown and we'd walk in and police officers, the motorcycle police officers used to be the traffic control on the corners. Right. So they would help people, you know, cross the street in, in heavy traffic hours. And uh, I remember passing by and I saw this man standing up next to this great big machine with these tall black boots on and his shirt that had stuff on it that shined like new money. Wow. And when I passed by him, yeah. I was awed. I, yeah. just, I was stuck in the concrete. Yeah. And I just remember looking at him saying, that's it. That's, that's it. me. Thunderbolt. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he didn't tell me a word. The guy leaned over and he tweaked my cheek. Wow. And I couldn't wait to get back home because Miss Herson had given us an assignment before we got out for Easter break. Yeah. That when you come back, bring me a theme paper on what you want to be when you grow up. Yeah. So, man, I told my mother and father, let's go home. The heck with shopping. I'm ready to get home. <laughs> I want to write. I want to do my homework. Right. So the topic, the, the, the subject of, of my paper was when I grow up, I want to be the motorcycle policeman who was in charge of all the police. Wow. So... It was a dream from there. So you're a motorcycle police officer. You also did some work with training. Now, what 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 did you do with the academy? I I, I was the lead instructor. Okay. I, I, yeah. Which means what? I, I took care of. Uh, I was one of the head instructors. Mm -hmm. uh, that I was in charge of making sure the uh, academics was covered. Right. Uh, did a lot of the teaching uh, and worked with other instructors, but. I had a specialty. I was uh, well known for being a self-defense instructor mm -hmm. in the department, uh, particularly when it came to came to weapons retention mm -hmm. and disarmament techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really well known for that. And uh, and and one of the things that people didn't know, but I was one of the first diversity instructors in in, in the nation. I went through the diversity. Diversity. What do you mean? Cultural uh, cultural awareness. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. Because that's important to a police officer oh my gosh, to understand know? the differences in the specific and, communities and why you're in. We do certain things. S sure. Yeah. So uh, we started doing that a long time ago. So I, I traveled a lot um, around Louisiana and and country. Okay. Uh, teaching uh, self-defense and uh, teaching diversity cultural awareness. So how long were you at the academy? I, I my it was a short stay, but. I taught my whole career, sure. you know, because in a department the size of Baton Rouge, though we look large, mm -hmm. you do you have a lot of uh, other jobs. Right. So I, my primary job was a motorcycle patrolman, but when the academies were going on, I was an instructor that was over there, and um, so I've been teaching since I got out the academy. Right. Uh, I started teaching in the very next academy, and I've taught my whole career. But in uh, I left motorcycles after about twenty years, and I did two years. Or so in uh, at the academy where I was full time mm -hmm. and, and worked with the uh, the recruits every every single day, and then uh, from there uh, the mayor was named and we went yeah. through the process and I became chief. So let's back up back up and because because I want to take my time working toward that uh, during the time of the serial killer investigation, I remembered that you were also. 
Um, you did you do a training or did you do some uh, some classes with people in the community? Yes, we did. Uh, I Pull that mic a little bit closer to you. We uh, we did. We we went to the chief and uh, Pat Inglade at the yeah, time, right? Chief Inglade. Yeah. Chief called us in and uh, we went and we sat down with him and he says, uh, "Hey, man." We need to bring awareness to the community, mm -hmm. and I give him a lot of credit for recognizing that. Mm -hmm. So he he tasked us with coming up with something right. that people might be interested in. So um, I had been doing some training for Exxon, mm -hmm. the women. It was starting to hire a lot of women. So back then, uh, came up with a little program that was easy for women to work with yeah. and retain. So we took that and we modified it a little bit, and we started going out to the community and. Uh, the first time we went out, we didn't know what the reception would be, mm -hmm. but we went to uh, we went to churches. We brought this to churches throughout the area, and uh, hundreds of people showed up, and they had a good time. They got a lot of information out of it. So then uh, it was just two or three times a week we were at a church somewhere in the community working with particularly the women sure, because it, sure. it was a frightful time. And, uh, and then they started showing it on television. That was mm -hmm. a time that myself and – Current Chief Dabity yeah. was my partner in this, and that was a time that we were the two most viewed people on Baton Rouge television. Oh, it's no question. Man, they I remember it. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I remember a package uh, that Channel Nine did during that time talking about that. Let's talk about that time in Baton Rouge, man. There were so many details, and I've I've spoken to Inglade about this after the fact because you remember, you know how it was. God forbid we had social media then. Then. Oh because there gosh. was so much bad information. Just imagine if there was a Twitter or a Facebook yeah. back then. Yeah. Because there was all of this all of this talk about what kind of vehicle the guy was driving. Was it a van? Was it a pickup truck? Was it white? Was it blue? All of the things that were going right. on. So inside of the department, how much of that did y'all have to deal with? Well, with with all of the, the the false information that was out there. You know the good thing about the way the department was set up, it, mm -hmm. it was a task force. Right. The chief put together a task force. And we really, it, there were times that we would be called to go to an area just to saturate it. Right. But it, it didn't get to us on a daily basis. It was really kind of contained within the task force. Okay. Now, those guys ran their butts off, yeah. man, because yeah. they had to chase down every lead. Yeah. And... I can I can only imagine. I know I had, and some. we had two at one time, right? Uh, yeah, maybe three at one time. Maybe three because there was there was Derek Todd Lee, there yeah. was Gillis, Gillis and, and then the guy that was later uh, connected to a couple of prostitute murders. Yes, yes, you know, yes, from the Lafayette area. They all may have worked around the same time. So this is going on. We get Derek Todd Lee. You get is it? Sean Gillis, uh, uh, Gillis, is, yeah, no, Gillis, I just his last and you know, Sean. Yeah. There was so much back and forth. The media came here. Diane Sawyer, I think, did a, a, a news story here for 2020. Did any of the media stuff get in your way, U.S. police officers back then? Because people were going. Because I remember I was doing a radio show at the time, and people would call me, and our deal was: listen, we're not the police, right? Right. <laughs> and I've always had the same the, the the same ethic all throughout my career doing broadcasting. I'm not going to become the part of an investigation. So you don't have to worry about Clay Young breaking a story that could jam up the police department because we need to get the bad guys off the street. Exactly. Did the media stuff bother y'all at all? No. You know, we, again, were pretty isolated from it. Yeah. Um, now, I'm sure the guys on the task force, and it was a large task force. Yeah, it was. Um, you had federal, state, local agencies, and, mm -hmm. you know, within the Baton Rouge Police Department and Sheriff Departments, there were lots of guys whose everyday task was to look for this guy. They really, uh, I, I don't think the department and the chief got the, the, the recognition that they should have back then. Uh, and I sat in, that was occasions I sat in on a couple of the briefings that they would go through and just the amount of information that mm -hmm. they dissected. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was a bang up job, but they kept us pretty well isolated right. from it. Uh, well, cause you guys had to be focused on what y'all had to do on the streets every day. We couldn't day. let the rest of Baton Rouge go. Right. You know, right. y'all had other things yeah. to deal with. Yeah. So Kip runs for mayor. Mm -hmm. He wins. Right. <laughs> so what was your relationship with Kip during the election 
leading up to it. Let's take people through it because there are parts of this story that have never been told. Well, everyone believed that uh, that we had. A, a, I just knew him from being a, a representative. So y'all you know? really didn't know no, one another. No, no, wow, we didn't. Uh, you know, I never hung out with Kip before right. that. Right. Uh, socially, you know, never. And for uh, those of you listening in other places, Kip Holden is the current mayor of Baton Rouge. Right. All right. And uh, but we didn't have that relationship. It was true process. And uh, but it didn't to me. I was going after the job. It was my turn, <laughs> you know. And yeah. uh, I had been telling. I, I told Chief Bonanno when I was hired as a police officer for the academy. Uh, at the, we we had an interview with the chief, and he sat at his desk. And I remember looking across at him, and he says, "Is there something else you want to say, young man?" I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "What is it?" I said, "One day I want to sit in your chair." And uh, he, he looked at me then, and he said, it's a long process. Just work hard. <laughs> yeah. And to his credit, when I was in the process, yeah. Chief Bonanno's health had failed, mm-hmm. and he actually was in his last days. Mm-hmm. But uh, the mayor later told me that Chief Bonanno called him and told him, he said, take Laduff. That kid has been wanting that job for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, so the process is going on. Pat Glade is leaving. Right. And there's got to be a new chief. Right. Toss your name into the hat. You take the test. Right. You make the cut. The phone call. Was right. there a phone call? It was a phone what call. What was the phone call? Well, it was. we were sitting at home. It was actually like a, a Tuesday night or so. Yeah. And uh, we had gone through two levels of interviews and and all of that. And did uh, he have a did he have a, an interview group? A, for yeah, that he had too? a selection committee. Yeah, yeah. It was headed up by uh, uh, now Sheriff Sid Gotro. Okay, uh, Sid was the chair, mm-hmm. and there was people from business and That's law interesting. enforcement. Yeah, you know all of that. So we 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 go through this process, and uh, I think what got me the job was in, in the final process. Um, in the original process, the first interview, I was the only one. I had a plan. Yeah. I put together short-term goals, long-term goals, objectives for the department. Yeah. And uh, I remember one guy, I don't remember who the kid was, but when I walked out, he, he, he was next, and he said, we, we, we had to bring something? We had to prepare something? And I remember looking at him saying, yeah, I think you should have. I think you should have, right? <laughs> so I remember when they asked the question, I would tell them, uh, turn to page, whatever. Yeah. And I had that question answered. Locked as it up. What. Yeah, man. So I, I, it was a good interview. I so, was ready for him. So then you get that call. You're home. Yeah. You and the missus are at home. And, the call and my comes, son. And Kelly was there. Yeah. All right, so tell me about it. You know, uh, I, I think... Sandy actually answered the phone. Right. And uh, they asked for me. Yeah. And, and we, I remember uh, when I'm on the phone at home, I don't know who else has this habit. I don't sit still. I walk <laughs> right. while I talk. I have right? that habit back. <laughs> yeah. I have that habit in my office. Yeah. I, 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 I always did. I, I'm up and moving. Thank God for uh, wireless communication. <laughs> oh, my huh? gosh. I remember my wife saying, hold on, he's right here. Yeah. And, and we ended up, they're standing in front of me. Yeah. I'm standing in front of my fireplace, and, and I have my back to the fireplace and I'm looking at them and they're reading my expressions right. and I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, sir. Okay, thank you. So you're you. literally giving them yeah. nothing by your yeah. expressions. No, nothing, right? <laughs> so we hang up the phone and they're like, what? I said, I have to go get a haircut. Why do you have to get a haircut? I said, because there's a press conference Friday. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we, we, uh, of course it was a, uh, we couldn't tell anybody. Right, so right. So it, it was right. just a lot of celebration in front. In the house. In the house. It threw a party. With us. Yeah, right. The three of us. But we, we couldn't, I, I, I didn't even, I wasn't able to tell my mother for a day or two. Wow. And then, uh, you know, I finally, I went over and I told my mother and uh, my sisters and my in-laws. And, How proud know. were they? Yeah, oh my God. My mother was just ecstatic, you know, and of course her thing was be careful. Yeah. You know, she was like every other mother. Yep. Um, you know, she, she never wanted me to be a policeman. Mm-hmm. She never wanted me to ride a motorcycle. And she knew my love for law enforcement. So sure. by the time this came along, she was just, I'm happy for you, but be careful. So before we move into doing the job, I want to I spend some time right there. You as a kid wanted to be a police officer, dreamed of doing it. You become a police officer. Then you dream of becoming police chief. And then you get a phone call saying 
you are going to be the chief. So that is a moment in your life where I have always wanted this and now I have it. So many people listening have dreams, things that they've wanted for years since childhood and they're working toward it. You are one of the few who got the opportunity to actually live your dream. Let's talk about that moment, what you were thinking when you knew I made it, baby. I made it. The thing is, you can't be afraid of the moment. Yeah. You know, because it wants to sneak its way in. Yeah. But you've worked your whole life for it. You've dreamed about it. You've seen yourself doing it. In in your role as a a subordinate in, Mm -hmm. in, in your job, whatever this job may be, You've always said, if I were in charge now, I'd do it this way. Um, so do it that way. Yeah. Don't be afraid of the moment. You know, don't second guess yourself. You're there for a reason. You know, it's no accidents, man. So you have it. Was there fear? Was there excitement? I, Was there anxiety? Let me tell you this. Yeah. I remember we had a huge press conference at the old state capitol. Yeah. And then I went back to the mayor's suite and I met with the mayor and, uh, you know, he gave me some uh, a little talk, and, yeah. and his uh, CAO was Walter Monsoor. Walter Monsoor, yeah. And uh, Walter gave me a little talk. Sure. And then they told me, go to work. And there's no training now. Yeah. There's, there's no, you leave. I was a sergeant yes. on Thursday, and I'm the chief. Yes. The appointing authority. Now. On a Friday. Now. Yeah. First, uh, first, bla- right. first, first black chief. First African-American chief yeah. in the history of the capital city of state of Louisiana. So not just living your dream. That's right. Not just getting there. That's right. The first, the first. of your ethnicity yes, sir. to ever do it. Yes, sir. Did that bring extra pressure? I, yeah. I, I put pressure on myself. Why? Because Why and what was the pressure? Do it right because yeah. if I don't do it right, there will never be a second. Mm. Do it right. Mm. Do it your way, but do it right. So then that leads me into the case of George Temple. We can't get into details. Obviously, we won't. But George Temple was a young man, had an altercation with one of your officers. Right. Uh, George Temple and the officer end up in a skirmish on the ground, a fight over the gun by the the account of witnesses there. They all agree on that. A... A, cons- a customer in an auto parts store comes out, sees it, subsequently shoots George Temple, and he dies. Right. Black elected officials are upset about this, and they're targeting you. Yeah, it comes to me. Comes to you. It now, to a black witness, a young man, ended up on television saying, I saw it. Right. Now, again, we're not re-prosecuting this because right. that's not why I'm asking. But I do want to know what were your thoughts when lawmakers were calling upon you to do something differently and how that was. Do the right thing. Yeah. When you sign up for these jobs, when you're having these dreams, mm-hmm. and I'm talking to the young folks out there who are dreaming today. Right. That never enters your dreams. Right. It's just the good things that you dream about. You see yourself in that position. But my advice to you is prepare. Yeah. Because it's coming. Yeah. But let me tell you, before that, I was baptized by fire, mm-hmm. me and the mayor. And to his credit, I mean, we were both brand new, and we had Katrina. Katrina. You know? I mean, that was yeah. day one. Yeah. I mean, we, we were The election together. was 04. Right. You took elected. the job in 05. Yeah. And, and in August of 05, Katrina. the worst nat- nat- natural disaster in America's history. My gosh, man. So, so But we, I want to I go back to Katrina, yeah. but, you, but on this other thing, you, you said do the right thing. Do the right thing. Whatever the evidence says, whatever yeah. job you're in, there is a... Uh, you, whatever the information you receive and you see it as being right, you got to stand by what's in front of you and what's right. Do you think people were putting pressure on you to make a decision based upon race? I know some people did. Okay. Yeah, sure. And that's not the guy you are. I no. mean, I, I, I'm not going to pretend you and I are close friends. Right. And I know you as a man right. and I know you're not that guy. No. But did yeah. you receive yeah. criticism because they wanted you to do something other than the job called for you to do. Right. I think in the very beginning, yeah. you know, early on in it, I did receive criticism. Yeah. And, uh, but as information, because I had information that they didn't. Right. And unfortunately, you know, you can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so that lends itself for judgment as well. Yeah. So, so uh, let's move on to Katrina. Um, I remember the weekend before the storm. Katrina hit on August 29th, 2005. 
the Saturday before the storm, I'll go back before then, the Friday morning, I'm doing a morning show, Friday morning, I get somebody from the National Weather Service on the show, and in the last 10 minutes of the show, I ask about Katrina, and he says, ah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be much of anything. We expect it to cross Florida uh, and then hop right back into uh, the, 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 the outside, into the Atlantic. Run up the eastern side, you know, eastern coastline. Won't be a problem really for the central gulf. This is Friday. I go on through my day Friday. Saturday, I'm out working in my yard, and uh, he's no longer with us, but I see a call from Ed Bugs. It's about 12 o'clock. It's like, what is Bugs calling me for on a Saturday? So I answer, and I said, hey, man, what's going on? And then Ed, and, and the way Ed was, are you watching the news? I said, no, Ed, I'm working in my yard right now. What do you mean am I watching what? the news? He says, turn on CNN. That's what he says. So I go into the house. I turn on the television. (laughs) On CNN is Governor Blanco, uh, Ray Nagin, uh, Thad Allen, and all these people. I'm like, what's going on? And Ed says, this is the big one. This is the big one. So I said, well, got to go, Ed. And I almost hung up on him because I wanted to hear what the governor was saying. And so they're telling people, y'all got to get out. Got to get out of New Orleans. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm watching this. So I, I, I ended up talking to the program director at the time who calls me and says, well, we're going to do some coverage on this thing because it doesn't look like this storm is going to shift. Look like it's going to come right into the Gulf, right into the mouth of Mississippi. So we go through the evening, do the storm. And now we're going wall to wall. So I leave Sunday going into the station about the middle of the day and on Blue Bonnet, there are. This is Sunday. Tons of traffic. Gas stations filled with cars. I get to the station. All these people are there. And so I'm on the air. I I was on the air when the storm made landfall. Yeah, you can pull that to you. I was on the air when the storm made landfall. And I just remember thinking, Andrew was something. But this is something else. So now, you are the police chief. Right. Eight months on, not even eight months on the job, barely. And this storm is happening. Talk us through what you were going through when you knew this was going to be a big deal and then how you dealt with it. Well, we have to back up a few Okay. Days because on August 10th. Yes. At 310 in the afternoon, it was a Friday afternoon, I get a phone call. I'm taking a, I'm doing a photo shoot for a magazine. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, sunny, summer day. Mm-hmm. Well, I have my, I'm there, my PIO, um, uh, uh, two of my PIOs, and one of my... Uh, one public of information people, officers. Yeah, mm-hmm. public information officer. And one of the other people that work in my administration are standing around while, while they're doing this photo shoot. And uh, all of our phones started going off at the same time, which is never a good thing. Mm-hmm. So we paused the little, the little guy, you know, they introducing the new chief to Baton Rouge. So we, we all take out our phones and we look at him simultaneously. And, and we just stare at each other. And, and we don't even tell him, but we tell him, we got to go. The phone call was, I had three officers down. Oh, yes. Three officers had been yes, shot. Yes, yes, Serving a warrant. Yes. Um, in the middle of Baton Rouge. Yes. You know, I'm a brand new chief. And you telling me that I have three people shot. Nobody can tell me the circumstances. Uh, I don't know who's living, who's dead. Um, it's actually four people shot because of the, uh, the young man that did the shooting was shot, mm-hmm. too. So you have four people on the ground. Uh, three of them are your officers. And you know all three of them very well. Yeah. Uh, you don't know who's involved and to what extent. And I remember my uniform patrol commander telling me, get in the car, let's go, I'll drive you. And I remember saying, no, I may have to do some things, and you may need to stay on the scene, so we need to go separately. I said, you go, I'm right behind you. He said, you're all right. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm Were okay. you really? I wasn't. Okay. I couldn't even find Capitol Heights. Yeah. In shock. I, I, yeah. I got in my car. Um, our office is downtown Baton Rouge. Capitol Heights is in the center of the city, uh, a little bit to our east of where my office was. 
And I, I thought on, on that time of evening, catch the interstate, get off on Acadian, and, and you know, go to Capitol Heights. Yeah. Couldn't find it. I was lost. I was lost in a city that I know every street in. Absolutely. And uh, I eventually got there, and uh, they were picking up. Uh, one of my officers was shot in the knee. It wasn't considered life-threatening. Um, one of my officers was shot in the head. The young man who was shot, who did the shooting, the suspect in this, was lying on the ground. Um, didn't look like he was going to make it. And I remember saying, "Where's the? who else? Where's the third? And uh, they said, he's still in the house. Well, when they say that, you know he's dead. I, I said, where? So I, I started moving toward the house. And I remember my uniformed patrol commander putting his hand in my chest. I'm a very emotional man. Yeah. We're going to talk uh, about that, too. Uh, but... When I'm angry, I'm, I'm not easily handled, and I was angry. So I remember looking at his hand, and I didn't touch his hand, but I remember his hand being in my chest, and I just remember looking down at it, and then I looked back at him, and I, I guess he sort of looked in my face. Moved his Don't hand. Touch. Yeah, he moved his hand. Yeah. And then I remember he put his hands up like in front of him, and he says, you can't go in. You don't need to go in. And I said, why? And there was a little door. It was a little porch-looking area. And uh, I remember him telling me, he said, just look, look in that door. And all I saw was this kid's two feet in the air, propped against the wall from where I was standing. Wow. And, uh, and I asked him who it was. Terry. And he said, Terry. Terry Melanson. And to know Terry... Uh, I've been knowing Terry since he was a little boy. Oh, yeah. You know, people wondered why I was so emotional. That kid sat between my legs when he was three years old on my motorcycle. Mm -hmm. His grandfather was a motorcycle patrolman. His uncle was a motorcycle patrolman. His family was deeply tied to the Baton Rouge Police Department. Jeff, he was you. He was me. He wanted to be All his a life. police officer. He was you. Just another me. And uh, it was... Uh, they got they got everybody up. Um, that was they, a somber day in this. Oh town. my God, man! Yeah, you know the movie American Sniper. Yeah, I can't watch the end. I was told what the end of the movie looks like. Yeah, and I have yet. I've watched the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, when we went to the theater, I've watched that movie, and I could not. Sit there, yeah, for the end because I have been told what it looked like. I haven't seen it yet, but I, everyone who has seen it said that the end is so jarring it leaves you stunned. As she said, every the, the uh, friends have told me everybody who walks out they're just quiet. You're not right. ready for the end, right. even though you know it's coming. I don't. I'm not ruining the uh, movie for your customers and your your the, viewers. Well, everybody there. knows how it ends, so it shows his funeral. Yeah, that was Terry's funeral. Yeah. Everybody in Baton Rouge yeah. stood on the street. Oh, yeah. Stood on the street. They uh, held flags, the fire trucks. Oh, yeah. Three miles of police officers on motorcycles and in cars, four or five miles. I don't remember what it was. It was just, it looked just like that. Wow. Just like that. That started Katrina. Because we had just buried Terry. That's exactly right. And we were still dealing with Neil. And we were still dealing with Dennis, who yeah. was more seriously injured. Yeah. And who we had to transfer to New Orleans. Well, I, I do want to transition back to Katrina, but you bringing this up. I can remember how this town came together. The, the funeral was at Healing Place because it was a large facility, yeah. large enough to hold this. And I could just remember this town coming together. In fact, I did my radio show from someplace in, uh, in town, I forget where, and we took donations because we lost one of ours. 
the town lost one of one of one of its own. So this time is going on. You have to speak at this. Yeah. Overwhelmed with emotion, but you know you have a responsibility to the men and women under your command. Sure. But also to the half million citizens in the region. Exactly. So what's going through your mind as you prepare for this speech? Because I know you well. You don't have to write speeches. You you can just do it. But what's going through your mind? Honestly, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want this job anymore. Mm. Only after eight months. Yeah. I didn't sign on for that. Yeah. Again, when you dream about that that place you want to be in the world... I'm telling you, put all the equations together. Yeah. I didn't. I never put that in there because I am a police officer. Yeah. I was one. You don't want to think about that because you have to question your own mortality. There. Oh, yeah. None of us want to die. No. None of us. I mean, hell, man, I was scared to death. I, people ask me, Chief, you ever been scared? Yeah. Yes. I've been so scared that I've shaked, man. You know? And uh, so... Here I am, I have this wonderful kid from this wonderful family dead. I mean, you gotta hold his parents' hands. And just let me say this, I would not be the chief past that day if it wasn't for Terry's mother. (sighs) My strength to go on came from her. Tell me about it. She is the most religious, loving, forgiving, caring individual. Her, her strength through whole, all of this, I think, carried this whole city. Yeah. Did you blame yourself? I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Uh, I changed some things after that. Yeah. Uh, I did. I changed some things. Yeah. Because it shouldn't happen. Yeah. And I still today, you know, people, I've been retired now nearly five years, but it's all still right here. Mm -hmm. And you still, there's still moments when when things go on and you're like, hmm, I still, I didn't do that quite right, you know? And you wish you could go back in time and put some things in place before, but you can't. So you speak at the funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start to move on from then. If I'm not mistaken, the day that that shooting took place, that was also the day that Clifford Etienne was arrested for armed robbery. Armed robbery. And did he try to shoot an officer? Yes, what was the tr- incident with an officer? He, they jammed him up. Well, he, he did an armed robbery. In the middle With of us. A woman in her car, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right by the hospital that th- two of my injured officers were in. So you had a million cops out there. The way this work is, when somebody is injured, we all show up. Oh, yeah. So when they started responding to this, this guy was in the middle of police heaven. <laughs> I, every officer <laughs> yeah. was there, and, and every officer was emotional. Yeah. But my guys did a great job. They you know, composed themselves. Did they compose themselves? I, I don't know how the guy didn't, I, with the emotions being what they were for the day. I mean, they just left seeing one officer dead, two others. And a young man. Gravely injured, yeah. Yeah. Young man. And uh, and he pulls this armed robbery, and he pulls the weapon, but the officer saw that the weapon jammed, and he didn't shoot. How he saw that, I, just great training. He recognized what was going on. They were able to apprehend him and without firing one shot. One shot. They didn't <laughs> fire a shot. So we go through this period, and now we get to three and a half weeks or so later. And then there is Katrina. Storm's going to hit. You know it's coming. Uh, when did you know this was going to be the big one, the one that we've been hearing about for years? You know, we've been hearing about the big one coming for years. But when did you know, okay, this is not dress rehearsal. This is the show. Uh, on that uh, a day or two, two, two days before the mayor called us, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to report to EOC. Yeah, and uh, our guy, uh, and, and he was the state climatologist at the time, was Jay Grimes. Jay Grimes, good friend. Yeah, uh, good man. Yeah, he is. And I remember Jay looking at us and saying, "I think this is going to be 
a tremendous event. And he's we, never really wrong when no, he says man, stuff that like that. No, man, that guy's never wrong. <laughs> uh, and we went to work. Yeah. It started that when when the mayor activated us and yeah. we started putting our plans. We had. What does that mean? When Because I hear people say we've activated <laughs> uh, forces or, or resources. What does that mean? We, we have contingencies for events like this. Yes. Uh, we're going to change our shifts. We're going to cancel vacations. Uh, people are going to go to work. Yeah. So we went from having three shifts a day to splitting up the department and putting them on a 12-hour shift. Uh, we were ready to move forward. And um, we were moving through, and we thought we'd survive this thing pretty well. Yeah. Until the canal. And that is the story. That's the story. The city survived the storm, but did not survive the levee breakages. No. That's, that's the story. So then water is now filling parts of New Orleans at a violently rapid pace. What are you guys? Because because the law enforcement officials and people in emergency preparedness, you guys knew that before most of the public knew it through the media. And right. we were we were the line of communication between y'all and the public, because generally speaking, when you guys got information, y'all used us as a conduit to get it to the public. There was no opinion media or anything locally here because we're invested. Right. So when did you know the levees had broken? Uh we were in the EOC, and I remember the mayor coming in and saying, New Orleans, basically said New Orleans is on its way to Baton Rouge. Yeah. And we like, huh? <laughs> you know? He said, you know, he, he informed us, and uh, we started making phone calls. And uh, I remember the, 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 the thing that just stays with me is the number of people who were calling. You know, everything was underwater. In yeah. Orleans. They had gotten numbers to our EOC, our 911 center. Yeah. And they were calling Baton Rouge saying, we, water is on, we're in the attic. Water is getting ready to come into the attic. Yeah. We need some help. I mean, people literally calling Baton Rouge police yeah. trying to get help in New Orleans. I remember speaking to Chief Compass during this time. He was the chief in New Orleans. And, right. And I remember Eddie gave me a call, and the con connections were so bad, but... He's like, Jeff, I need bullets. Bring I need, me bullets. I need bullets. You know? Because I mean, of the rioting? I mean, nothing. or the looting? Or what? Yeah, or, or, I, know, or, or did he just need supplies? He needed everything. He needed supplies because all his stuff was gone. Man. Okay. It was underwater. Uh, you know, and we made it down there, uh, myself and uh, Chief Henry Whitehorn. Yeah. Went down to New Orleans uh, via hel helicopter uh, doing the water event. And to just see that city from the air, uh, it's a view that very few people had. Uh, what were you thinking when you saw that? That it would never recover. Yeah. This is this is it. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, man, this this is the one that they've always talked about. That oh, just, yeah. With, with the elevation of the city of New Orleans, I, I thought about my family. I had family missing, too. Right. You know, uh, I had a cousin that uh, lived... Uh, off of uh, St. Bernard, and they can't find him, his wife, his daughter. Yeah. They were last seen going into a school across the street from him. Uh, people check the school. They see blood, and, but nobody's in there. So we thinking the worst, you know. Yeah. But you, as the chief, you got to put all that aside because I have a whole city who's now being inundated by air, land, and sea. Yes, yes. Air, land, and sea. Yeah. I have people coming in. And stolen. I had a guy, I remember, he told my officers, he said, man, listen, you're the first police officers I'm seeing. This is a stolen truck. I, I, this is the only thing we could get to get in. And he had 50 people in the back of it. You know, I mean, he said, I don't want to go to jail. I just want to tell you, you know, so right. this is the only way I could get out. Yeah. Uh, we found keys and we left. Right. Uh, what do you want me to do with it? <laughs> well, stand by. We, we will get to <laughs> you in a minute. Get in line. But the number of uh, injured that were coming in, and, uh, you know, we, we were working with the hospitals, and they set up the uh, the uh, the units at LSU. And, yeah. Uh, just the mayor's decision to turn the, uh, I think what saved Baton Rouge was that decision. When he came to us and said, you have six hours to come up with a plan and turn the River Center into yeah. a mega a shelter. shelter. Yeah. And do it uh, the way he wanted it done. and um, And we did. 
what what are your thoughts about the incident on the Danziger Bridge? I, you know, I'm gonna tell you. I, I've I've talked to some people, and uh, I, I think when all of the lawsuits are said and done. I'll tell you a little bit more because I happen. Well, to, it is going on right to, now to That's be right. able to okay. give. Well, that just well, there's going to be many more interviews, and yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll be able to talk about this. <laughs> I just don't want to get pulled into a lawsuit. <laughs> I don't want you to get subpoenaed, and I don't want to be subpoenaed yeah, either. No. So, so we get through Katrina, and um, I want to do a part two to this discussion. And in the part two, I want to talk about how Baton Rouge and the criminals in Baton Rouge took a PhD class Mm -hmm. on how to do it based Mm -hmm. upon some of the criminals Mm -hmm. that came up from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about Gustav. I want to talk about uh, the the balance of your time as chief, your relationship with the mayor, and a lot more. We'll get into that next week on the next edition of the Clay Young Show. Back in just a moment to wrap up matters after this. Clay Young and John Fabry here for Infinity of Baton Rouge and Infinity of Lafayette. I know you all know about the great selection of new cars and SUVs, but the pre-owned selection is equally impressive. Always. Pre-owned is is a huge part of our business. We actually sell as many pre-owns as we do new. Mm-hmm. We, we always get great trade-ins. We have a great selection. Uh, we keep always at least, just in Baton Rouge, over 180. And in, right. in Lafayette, we have another 100 to select from. So, again, whether you're looking for inexpensive, mid-range CPOs, a certified pre-owned yeah. Infinities, uh, SUVs, trucks, small cars, mid-size, you name it, we have it. So if you're in the find yourself in the market for a pre-owned car, come check us out. We can help with financing as well. In Lafayette, it's InfinityLAF.com. And in Baton Rouge, it's InfinityBR.com for Infinity of Baton Rouge and Infinity of Lafayette. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show. Fantastic show this week. Next week, part two of our conversation with former police chief Jeff Leduff. And we will talk with Lionel Rainey. Lionel Rainey is the spokesman for the St. George, the city of St. George movement. Now, this is something that's happening in South Louisiana, specifically inside of East Baton Rouge Parish, that has gained a lot of attention around the country Lionel is brutally honest, so he's going to fit right in over here, and he will be with us to talk about why this movement came about. We will talk about all of the uh, accusations made about the people trying to push this movement forward, how the city can survive without raising taxes. Is there or isn't there a surplus? All of that next week. In fact, if you have a question for Lionel Rainey, you can send it to me on Twitter. That's at Clay Young BR at C L A Y Y O U N G B R. And on Facebook, just search my name. And of course, podcast 225 is on uh, Facebook as well. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and that way you will never miss any new updates. And by the way, from time to time, We may sneak in a little something before you get to Thursday. The only way you'll know that is if you subscribe on iTunes. So, a good week so far. Off to a great start. Show number three has been fantastic. Show number four should be something else. Lionel Rainey and former police chief Jeff Leduff. I'm Clay Young, and this is The Clay Young Show on podcast225.com and on iTunes. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.